Uh, and the plan, while in the middle of a heated battle, Ian Freeman's pirate radio station has been destroyed by the FCC troops on the planet Guevara, leaving Ian Freeman in critical condition. Meanwhile, Johnny and Raylene have arrived on the planet Yall to find Major Cliff Maloney and obtain his secret plans. When Johnny and Raylene arrive on the planet, they find Major Maloney and his young cadets surrounded by status forces. Cliff Maloney is the national president of the Young Americans for Liberty, a freedom advocacy organization with over 900 chapters on American college campuses. Y'all's mission is to identify, educate, train, and mobilize youth activists committed to winning on principle. Across the galaxy, Johnny Squadron, who's now in charge by ground control, has been ambushed and is now retreated to the Spooner system to meet up with political cartoonist Jim Bob. Will Major Cliff Maloney be able to make it out alive and escape the encroaching status troopers? Will Johnny's Squadron be able to survive in order to meet up with Jim Bob? Is there any hope in sight? Stay tuned to hear Cliff Maloney on episode 47 on Blast Off with Johnny Rocket. Transmitting directly from the launch pad. Bringing blue collar to your cell tower. The rock and roll libertarian himself. It's time to blast off. With Johnny Rocket. Hey, this is Blast Off with Johnny Rocket, and I'm here with my Ray Truth, Miss Raylene Lightheart. Hello. How's it going, Johnny? What's new? Uh, well, I don't know. I'm, I'm fine. I was uh, actually, something happened at work. Did you hurt yourself? Or did you hit your head again? <laughs> no. <laughs> No, actually, I was thinking that I actually haven't hurt myself in a while. And that's the, <laughs> that was what I was actually thinking. Like, <laughs> so the thing that happened was that you didn't hurt at yourself? At work is I was thinking I haven't hurt myself in a while, which is like a total <laughs> change in how it oh normally goes Oh, my God. Out. Oh, we got to get a dad joke that's just about that. <laughs> okay, yeah. Okay. Well, we, got, we have to get the show on the move because uh, our guest is pretty important and we don't want to keep the man waiting Young Americans for Liberty is a libertarian student activism organization headquartered in Arlington, Virginia. Formed in 2008, YWL establishes chapters on colleges across the United States and deploys its members to knock on doors like Mormons for the Liberty candidates for the state. According to the organization's website, Young Americans for Liberty is the most active and effective libertarian youth organization advancing liberty on campus in American electoral politics. Their four-step mission is to identify, educate, train, and mobilize youth activists to make liberty win. Cliff Maloney is the president of the Young Americans for Liberty. Cliff is a native of Pennsylvania and has appeared on Fox News, PBS, Fox Business, Reason TV, and The Hill TV. His work has been published in Time, The Hill, The Huffington Post, The Washington Times, BuzzFeed, and The Washington Examiner. Currently, Cliff's greatest aspiration is to see the Young Americans for Liberty's network newest and most ambitious project, Operation Win at the Door, reach success in its goal of electing 250 legislators by the end of 20. 22. Okay, Raylene, prepare for liftoff. Copy that, Johnny. Covers, tie-downs, and grounding cables. Removed as required. Communications connected. Check. Preamps in the green. Check. Cold beer. Double check. <laughs> Thrusters are hot. Raylene, are you ready to rock? All systems go, Johnny. Let's blast off with Cliff Maloney! Woo! Yeah. 
cool, and you are doing some really cool things with young Americans across the country and uh, teaching them the ways of liberty. And I'm going to start off with a really stupid question. And I always say it's stupid, but it's like the obvious question. Could you explain what Young Americans for Liberty is and what is the mission statement of the organization? Absolutely. Well, hey, Johnny. Hey, Raylene. Thanks for having me. Young Americans for Liberty, we are a youth organization working with college students. The mission is pretty simple to identify, educate, train, and mobilize uh, youth activists committed to make liberty win. And the idea here is uh, we have a youth army we built on campus by trying to recruit students, and then we deploy that youth army. Mm -hmm. So we believe in libertarian principles across the country, and then we identify candidates that we will deploy for, and those students, our tactic is to doorknock. Um, so we have a, a program that we kind of deploy our students into uh, called Operation Win at the Door. And cool. Yeah, is to build a bench of candidates that believe in libertarian principles. That's uh, that's the simplest way of saying it. Very cool. Very cool. Nice. One, one thing that I've noted about young voters and activists is that they come in really full of energy and passion, but may not be in the movement for a great length of time, just because a lot of them are in college and, and they have the free time right now. How do we harness their willingness to give extra time and the ability to move into action in a way that capitalizes on their lifestyles? Yeah, Raylene, you ask a, a really important question because this was something that that I saw. You know, I took over the organization in 2016 and, you know, really 2017 was my first full year. And I kind of saw this, I call it the stalemate, where people get involved, they get educated, they get excited, and then they burn out. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And how do you how do you harness that energy? And that's actually the reason uh, why I kind of said, look, we continue to build this youth army, but why aren't we deploying it? You know, why aren't we why aren't we doing things that will continue to turn over that excitement uh, to re-energize people? And honestly, it's it's fun because it's a risk, but when you do electoral politics, you can lose. And when you lose, you burn out twice as quick. Right. Uh, but when you win, you really, really double down your energy. And so that's been something that we've we found that, you know, we take the energy of these young people. Our, our tactic of door knocking is working. Um, we put 10 students on the ground in the district, usually for 30 days, depending on the district size, knock about 30,000 doors. Very cool. State legislative races. And it is taking that energy and actually using it while people have it. Mm -hmm. The best part is it's 30 days. You know, we don't do like a six month deployment. We also don't do like a couple <laughs> right. where it's not worth it. It's 30 days. So you can see the finish line. And the coolest thing when it comes to harnessing energy is on election night, picture yourself, you're a 20 year old college student. You're in a room. There's nine other people with you. And you're looking at each other saying, holy, <laughs> we just got a guy. <laughs> to state house. Right. Yes. That to me is, it's, it's kind of like taking the energy and it's, it's exponentially kept people in the movement. So you do, I know you didn't throw me a softball, but I get real excited talking about it because that experience we've created through win at the door um, is exactly the problem we've been trying to solve, which is how do you keep people engaged? Really glad to hear it. I love it. Uh, Mr. Maloney, really quick, what are some of the things like that get people riled up? I mean, so you got kids and like right now there's a, a you know, a lot, a big push for communism and socialists and, you know, democratic socialism. I'm sorry. I said it wrong, but there's a big push for that. And, and it's a problem. I mean, but like, what are some of the, you know, what really gets people fired up and, and what have you noticed, you know, how you kind of initial or initiate people into the system? 
or your organization, excuse me. Yeah, so I would say that there are two audiences that I am always laser focused on engaging with. The first is our core audience, which is the students, young people, right? So young people to me, I, I will I will stand by this from a, a libertarian philosophy standpoint, mm-hmm. still think that foreign policy and privacy um, are just the two issues that continue to resonate. And look, when I say privacy, I don't just mean, you know, metadata and the government getting off our back, but I mean the privacy of civil liberties, you know, to to put in your body and to do with your body what you want mm-hmm. to without the government dictating what it is that you can do as long as you don't hurt other people. Right. Uh, so to me, foreign policy, I think people try to move away from it because, you know, there's not as many, well, there's not as many conflicts as say in the news, but the reality is, you know, we're all hippies at heart. We all believe in helping each other. And especially from the libertarian perspective, it's like, look, don't kill people. You know, let's right. I know our neighbor. So, I mean, I, I think people miss that. That's how Ron Paul tapped into so much support was his moment with Giuliani when he said, look, we should treat people the way we want to be treated. They don't hate us because we're free. They hate us because we've been over there. We've been bombing them. We've been on the Arabian Peninsula. Let's come home. Um, exactly. Yeah. We still find if you're asking, like, what energizes people, we still find the most support is based on that non-interventionist, sober foreign policy of peace and freedom. And I think that the, the, the civil liberties slash privacy of you know, ending the drug war, uh, just a broader criminal justice reform and privacy, leave me the hell alone. Mm, so we right. try to tap into those issues as much as we can um, because we think it's the broadest coalition builders to get people into the fold. And once you have them in, then we can hit them with the economics. Then we can hit them with the proper role of government and why we need to cut spending and why taxes are, you know, not a net positive for the country. Um, But all that comes, I think we've got to play the game that the left plays, which is, you know, there's emotion uh, and you've got to tap into that. Now that's the first audience. That's the students. The second audience, you know, you're talking about investors, people that are going to help us fund our organization and what we're doing. They have learned, they've been around to know the pitfalls of socialism. So you want to talk about what gets them jonesed up is AOC and is Bernie, you know, kind yeah. of spouting off these just completely erratic things about how government is the answer. And I want to make a point for all your listeners. That I think every single person who believes in the principles of liberty needs to be specific about. It is not enough to just be anti-AOC, anti-Bernie or anti mm. Absolutely. Yes, I agree bitch and moan about socialism and call it the devil because well what's what's the response and even if you say capitalism yeah capitalism is response but it better be free market capitalism that's right it that's better right be civil liberties it better be a sober foreign policy and it better be economic freedom but we need to demand of ourselves to present a positive we can't just present the negative of look socialism bad because the vacuum of what that looks like I want it to be libertarian principles and libertarian philosophy. We need to lead, not just be reactionary. I love that idea about, yes, providing solutions and showing how they work is absolutely imperative. So I would like to dig a little deeper in in how you were talking about communicating with young people. What's your advice on reaching them quickly? In a meme culture, in a world that we are seeing things in sound bites, headlines, uh, we're inundated with it in social media, which our children and young people are also. So what phrases, topics, or delivery are you seeing the most be the most effective in your experience? Yeah, so I'd say that there are two different platforms uh, or ways that we think of reaching people. The first is on campus, right? So that's our bread and butter. 
You have the experience in the classroom, then you have the experience on campus. The in the classroom experience, we don't touch, right? I mean, that's, mm-hmm. I'm going to say too far gone, but yeah. that is, uh, you know, that's just, it's a bag that we're not able to access. But the on campus experience, we can touch. And so we do campus activism. Think of it like street theater, mm-hmm. right? We mm-hmm. build big displays. We're trying to get students to engage. We're trying to have conversation. But I always tell people, if you set out to reach somebody and make them a Rothbardian or a Milton Friedman or an Ayn Rand or whatever philosopher it is that you want them, Henry Hazlitt, to become, if you're trying to do that in the first 60 seconds, which a lot of people do, they're trying to hand out, you know, Atlas Shrugged. Okay, that's it's a valiant effort. I, I applaud you, but you're missing the boat. Okay. The boat is you have six to 10 seconds to, A, get somebody's attention enough to have them stop at your table or stop at your display. Exactly. <laughs> Once you have that six to 10 seconds, then maybe you have 20 seconds to 30 seconds to get them to take something, to get them to sign up, or as we say, to get them to be interested enough to show up to your meeting or your speaker or your film or whatever it is that you're doing. Mm-hmm. So when we have an activism project, let's say it's on campus during lunch hour, we're always pushing, our chapters are pushing the students they're recruiting to come to like a seven o'clock meeting where we're going to have a professor of economics like Anthony Davies talk about the minimum wage. Mm-hmm. He's such a cool guy. He's such a cool guy. He, he to me is, uh, he's, he's an untapped resource that I'm trying to tap into. He is, he's brilliant. But the, the point is to get people engaged enough to come out and spend the 30 minutes to 60 minutes diving in. You yes. cannot get them to dive in at the table. And so I don't want to say it to be gimmicky, but you have to be elementary. You've got to kind of reach people where they're at. If you ask what a libertarian is to 10 people on campus, I would argue about two out of 10 people will tell you it's somebody that works at the library. Now, (laughs) that's great. I wish I was kidding. Um, But what I'm saying is we have a lot of work to do. And so you've got to find people want to put food on the table. They want to get their degree. They want to find a girlfriend or a boyfriend. They want to have a beer or a drink at night. Mm -hmm. And that's okay, right? We've got to normalize liberty, not water it down but simplify it so people can understand it. So that's the the first part being campus activism, I think. The the strategy has to be to keep it simple, be not bombastic in a negative kind of like, you know, losing your principal way, but but be interesting. Right. And mainstream enough that people are like, oh, yeah, like, you know, we'll build a huge display of the national debt across the quad, like six feet tall, each digit, you know, Mm -hmm. going, people say, what the hell is that? Well, Hey, let me give you a handout. Come on out tonight. We're going to talk about the national debt. So point. you don't just say slavery of your grandchildren? Right. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But it, 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 it's, it piques someone's interest. And I think that's yeah. what's important. I mean, really, your sales pitch has got to be 20 to 30 seconds. That something that, you know, piques their curiosity enough mm-hmm. to where they're, they're concerned. You're right. Like, you can't make somebody a Rothbardian in, in 30 to 60 minutes. You know what I'm saying, Mr. Maloney? Like, you're not. And you're right. You have to get your foot in the door with them. And I think that's where we start. And I think it's good that what you're doing, I mean, I I think it's amazing that you're reaching out. Like this show normally doesn't because we swear and we're jerks, whatever. But like, it's cool. I mean, I think it's really interesting that you are doing this and, you know, you've obviously put a lot of time into it. But I guess the main question is, who are the people who have the most interest? Is it people from the left, people from the right? And like what geographical region across the United States do you seem to have the most success with? 
Mm. Yeah, well, let me give you one one other example because she she had prompted my thought on this. So taxation is theft. It's you know obviously a huge libertarian. Yeah, uh, I love it. I love it. Yeah. Right, everybody loved it. So what I, I jokingly say is, look, you can have a sign with taxation is theft, but what we did, we had an event called Axe the Tax, where we literally would have the you know the the tens of thousands. I think we're up to like eighty thousand page tax code. We would eradicate mm. these and build them on campuses. And we would have blow up axes and people would pose taking photos of themselves, beating or axing the actual tax code. Right. Mm-hmm. And you know, look, yeah. Do, do people, do they know what they're doing or they know about the, the tax code? Maybe not, but guess what? They're engaging. And mm-hmm. so they're taking photos with this sign that says taxation is theft and ax the tax and they're sharing it, you know, and they're, they're engaging and having those conversations. But you mentioned who, who is our demographic that we're reaching out to and who is latching on. So, People think campus is liberal. We hear this all the time. Well, you know, students and young people, they're very leftist and they're, they're, they're socialists. Well, here, here's my findings. You might find that in the classroom. You might find the professors are very left-leaning. Mm-hmm. But the reality is if you look at our target audience being 18 to 22, maybe 18 to 25-year-olds, the vast majority of people are not left. They're apathetic. It is identical to the real, you know, the, the real world findings. Yeah. I mean, you know how it is. You guys mm-hmm. talk, well, most people could they're busy and that's fine. That's normal. We want right. to kind of pound their head with the books and say, Hey, read. And how are you not, you know, wake up. How are you not understanding these things? But the reality is let's say if there's 10 students on a college campus, or let's say a hundred, I'll make my math easier. If there's a hundred co- uh, students on a college campus, I would argue that about seven of them are going to be liberal. Three of them will be, you know, let's say, let's say two of them are more libertarian. Maybe one of them's conservative, hardcore, maybe more socially conservative that we're not going to align with. Mm-hmm. So what that leaves is 90 students that are apathetic. I'm not going to spend my time on the seven socialist hardcore lefties. Mm-hmm. I'm going to spend my time on the 90 apathetic students. So I look at that as an opportunity, not as, oh, my gosh, we're getting crushed in the philosophical world. I say, no, there are 90 percent of college campus students who they're open to hearing these ideas. They just need to be engaged with that okay. target universe. That's who we're trying to reach. Very cool. Very cool. I agree. Yeah. Do you see just as many kids who may think of themselves as leftist um, as you do uh, more conservative uh, identifying students? Do you see is there kind of an even mix of, of different walks of life showing up and fighting for liberty with you? So if you're talking about that, we convert over, I would say it's, you know, it depends I think it's actually an easier sell to conservatives because it's like, look, we agree with you on all the fiscal issues, but, you know, like we got to move away from these social issues. Mm-hmm. And one of the reasons I would say that, so I don't know if the raw numbers would show that, but I just think in general it's easier because of what I just said, that I think the social issues are easier to move people on. Mm-hmm. One of the problems I have with a lot of people on the left is there is kind of more of a fundamental disagreement on the proper role of government. I find this a lot because, look, we'll do a coalition events on free speech. Well, we'll partner with, with groups on the right. We'll partner with groups on the left. Mm-hmm. You know, if it's free, if they support free speech, you know, if they want to support any of our issues, we'll partner. But free speech is usually one where we can find some groups that no matter where they are, they'll agree. So what I find, though, is if, if you if you recruit on the free speech issue alone and you give people into your membership or people start coming out, you can run into a problem from the left, which is an economic disagreement on what the role of government is. Like if you don't understand that the government is not supposed to create the solutions, I mean, you just run into kind of this philosophical uh, dilemma. 
Right. Mm -hmm. Much harder to move people on the economics than I feel it is on the social issues. Um, so interesting. Are we seeing them come at an equal pace? I would say yes. I mean, we're pulling people from everywhere, mm -hmm. but I think that it's an easier case to be made. And that's why you find people like Justin Amash, Thomas Massey and Rand Paul, who would identify as having a libertarian philosophy, but they're under the Republican banner electorally. Because I think it's easier to move people if you say, look, I'm radical with you when it comes to the economics. Yes. Uh, but I just want that same type of mindset when it comes to social issues as well. Well, here's the thing, though. Like, is there overlap with Young Americans for Liberty and the Libertarian Party? I'm just curious about what, you know, the, the relationship is with you guys and them. Have you guys done stuff with the Libertarian Party? I know that, you know, you guys are more like Ron Paul, you know, Libertarians. But I'm just curious what you think about the Libertarian Party and, and how, you know, are there people converting after they, you know, graduate college going to the Libertarian Party with you guys? Yeah. So, you know, it's interesting because um, Republicans think I'm too Libertarian. Libertarians think I'm too Republican. Mm -hmm. we, we have a policy at YL. I mean, I'll, I'll share this with you. I, I did some work for Gary in 2016. A lot of people don't know that. Okay. I spoke at the LNC in 2018. Um, we in 2018, when we launched Operation Point of the Door, I was very clear and I was very loud about this. We do not care or have any loyalty to party. Um, okay. What we care about are the principles of the libertarian philosophy. So when we go to endorse candidates, we have a 30-question questionnaire. These are issues that we have vetted and decided, hey, look, here are the issues we are going to make our endorsements based on. Mm -hmm. So when we look at those issues, uh, I don't care about anything party-wise, but I care about two thresholds. The first threshold is principle. So we look at the survey to understand where they stand. We have a follow-up interview. We have an endorsement committee process. We try to figure out if they're principled and aligned with the issues that we care about. Then we look towards viability. So trying to understand, can they win? Now, this is where, yeah, sure, the party stuff can get in the way because we are looking for people that have a path to victory. So in 2018, I endorsed 76 candidates. We had over 400, actually, we were closer to 500 people apply for our endorsement. And these are state house candidates. I'm happy to, to dive in on the rationale there if you guys want it on why we do state Sure, house. bring it. Bring but it. I, I will tell you that out of the 500, there were 76 that met our threshold of viable and principle. Three of those folks were actually running under the Libertarian Party banner. Mm. So we had 73 Republicans that were the Liberty Republican Ron Paul types, right? And then okay. some that actually were running LP that we thought, hey, they could win their race. And so we decided to endorse because they met the principle and the viability threshold. That will be and is our current policy moving forward. I have, like I said, no qualms. I don't, I mean, I tell people this. I don't, I don't care if we have to endorse a Democrat. If they believe in the Libertarian philosophy, I don't have loyalty to party. And I would ask more people um, and more organizations, especially that have kind of a macro view to mm -hmm. take that stance, because I have plenty of friends that believe in working in the Republican Party. I have plenty of friends that believe in working in the LP. I have people in the Constitution Party, people running as independents. Um, I mean, I'd like to find a Democrat. Uh, we're actually close in 2020. I think we were going to find one to endorse. But I think that will be our policy. And look, I, I honestly don't care. I mean, I'd love to see a day where LP candidates are viable and I could, right. you know, our goal is to win 250 of these state races by 28 or by 2022. We've won 38 races. I'd love to, I'd love to make those be all LP or heck independent candidates. What I'm looking for now is using any vehicle possible to get people that believe in a libertarian philosophy elected to office and to take votes according to that. Rock and roll. Very cool. 
So I think Remzo Martinez was giving me a call. Um, he's been working with you guys. And uh, shout out, Remzo. Great work. I love what you're doing. Um, so as we're moving forward, I, I do want to say I remember someone saying I was not allowed to reach out to the YAL kids uh, because they're not allowed to work with us uh, for something about their nonprofit or uh, with the LP. Um, can you shed some light on that? Because I didn't understand it, but I know that there were rules. Yeah. So back before 2018, all of our YAL chapters were organized uh, as an educational specific under our 501c3. Okay. 2018, we have moved to, you know, with Operation Win at the Door, um, for endorsed candidates, you know, we have to track all the political time. There's a lot of uh, rules when it comes to the majority of our time supposed to be for educational, you know, development of our students, talking about the ideas and, and bringing them into the fold. Absolutely. We, we don't have any rules in terms of, look, if campaigns want to recruit our activists, they are 100% able to do that. LP, GOP, I mean, Democrat, I don't care who. The difference is a lot of times people want to come speak on campus or they want to do things in an official capacity with our YAL chapter. Mm-hmm. That we have to put a kibosh on. And we've always had a kibosh on that. I don't care what party they're in, but unless they're an endorsed candidate, um, we tend to not have candidates come speak because that cuts into our political time. Right. Because it can be seen as an endorsement. So when it comes to, you know, look, reach out to any of our YAL chapters, get them involved. I mean, that's why they exist is to, right. they're, they're, they're dedicated activists. They're interested. So if you can pitch yourself as a candidate mm-hmm. uh, and you think that YAL chapters and members and activists should get excited, that's what we're all about. So people should continue to do that. There is no rule that says that any member, especially of any specific party, um, cannot reach out, but it's just in an official YAL capacity, like coming to speak, um, you know, get, get the members out to one of your events, have them get involved with your campaign. That happens every single day, every single cycle. Um, and we love to continue to see that. What about um, voting for something locally? Is that still allowed um, if we ally with YAL, let's say, on um, a cronyist government bill that they're a uh, levy that they're trying to pass? Uh, would they be allowed to work with you to protest it or to in a group? Yeah. So, look, here's what happens all the time. Let's say a bill pops up and our local activists get excited about it. Mm-hmm. We'll have like, you know, we've had like just a couple of weeks ago. I mean, we've had activists that will go and testify for bills, mm-hmm. you know, so that happens all the time. What I'm right. saying is our attorneys give us instructions that there's a difference between national giving a directive that says, hey, we need this YAL chapter to do X okay, versus somebody running about initiative or a local party pushing a candidate or just a local campaign reaching out and trying to tap into our infrastructure. That's why we exist. Mm-hmm. So I always tell people tap into it all you want. Um, but national making some statement or signing on to bills, um, unless it's in one of our priority areas, which, you know, we do have state priorities that, um, that, you know, people can, uh, reach out to, and we can kind of discuss the bill. And if we have legislators in the state, absolutely, but we're not going to get involved with bills that are not part of our priorities. And we're not going to give dictates to our chapters because then it cuts into political time. Thank you for explaining it because yeah. I think that everybody felt that the uh, it was hands-off in, in our local chapter and so we just wanted to do it respectfully and not break any rules. So thank you for explaining that. Very cool. Thank you very much for that. Here's the thing. One quick question before we wrap up for a commercial break. Uh, what have been some of the challenges you've had in the organization and since the inception of Young Americans for Liberty and the implementation of it? What are the biggest challenges you guys are facing right now? Yeah, absolutely. So, 
to, to be successful, you know, with this new direction of Operation Winning the Door, you need three things. You need door knockers, which, you know, we haven't had a struggle with that. I mean, that's kind of our bread and butter, right, is recruiting mm-hmm. activists. You need candidates. So candidates, I mean, look, this past year we had enough that I was, I was you know, it was, but it was, a, it was more of a pilot year. We need to scale this thing. If we're going to win 250 of these races by 2022, we're going to probably have to do about 150 races in 2020. So that's going to be no joke to try to find viable, principled candidates. So that's the second part. The third thing is fundraising. I mean, I'm not going to lie to you guys. I mean, the Liberty fundraising world, um, I and my team, I will give them all the credit. I deserve none of it. But we're crisscrossing the states, trying mm-hmm. to get people to, to see the value of investing in what we're doing. Um, and the joke is, you know, we're libertarians who win. I mean, that, that's kind of what my joke is. Right. That's that's <laughs> Our pitch is, look, like we we are trying to advance the cause and we're winning. Um, but, I mean, we've taken the out from roughly a million or two million a year. I mean, we did $5.7 million. Nice. But, you know, I mean, look, there's a lot of groups out there. I mean, the Cato's, the Heritages of the World. I mean, some of these nonprofit think tanks and groups, they're raising 50 or or $100 million a year. I don't need that. What I need to do is get to really about $15 million a year. Uh, 10 to $15 million a year will be where we're kind of at max capacity. And so right. I'm excited to say we're getting close to that. So those are the three things that we need in terms of to be effective. Now, challenges you ask about. So all three of those things, I'm always keeping an eye on because you can't have two without the third. I mean, you need all three. Right. But the challenges, I would say, is, look, now we've got a resume. Now we've got candidates that have gotten elected. We've won 38 races. You have 38 people that now represent you. And there's some sure. challenges there. So one of the things I started is something called the Hazlitt Policy Center. Mm. We have a staffer and his job, his name is Chris Harrelson. His job day to day is twofold. The first is he has to hold our legislators accountable to the survey they took. And the second is he tries to pass liberty bills. You know, so actually, instead of reactionary, it's more proactive, right? Right, right. The watchdog, it's now, hey, can we pass legislation? So the first part has been interesting because when we set out to do this Operation Win at the Door, we said, look, we want to make sure that we can keep 90% of our people accountable. Now, people might say that, you know, you're endorsing these people. Talk to any group that endorses and tries to hold people accountable. <laughs> Difficult to hold people accountable. And that's why we really dive in on our survey. It's not a joke. It's 30 questions long. Right. And to this point, out of our 38 folks, we have kicked out one individual. It's a gentleman in Vermont who voted for, I believe it was $21 million in a tax increase with a plastic bag ban attached. An easy move for us. It was a shame. But, you know, <sighs> I had to make an example of him. We alerted all of our legislators. Hell yeah. That's awesome. That's awesome. Yeah, you're glad. It had to be Vermont, right? It just (laughs) had to be Vermont, Mr. Maloney. I'm going to whack these people because if we... (laughs) And that's, by the way, that's that's not... A euphemism. Literally, I just want to make sure I'm clear. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. We get it. We get it. So long story short, the first part for Chris of holding these people accountable, and actually it's been great. We made an example of this guy and said, look, we're not going to be one of these pushover groups that sits by. But we've also had issues, you know, uh, Mays Middleton in Texas presented a bill that was a ballot access bill. Mm-hmm. We, we've never taken a stance on, on that bill. We've had other bills, you know, that's not in our survey. We've had other bills that have popped up that could be seen as, I don't want to say anti-liberty bills, but bills that people might not have been sponsoring them, but people will call us, our local activists, and say, hey, there's this bill on X, Y, or Z, and we have made a decision as an organization that, look, we are not going to make a statement on every single bill that comes out. There are bills that are going to piss us off. 
There are going to be issues. And look, there are going to be things like, like, like the bill in Texas that are going to make us rethink. Should we put ballot access on our survey? Sure. Yeah. Chris is spending day in and day out following their votes, trying to get ahead on their votes to see the tough ones and push them in the right direction. But I'll tell you, that's a challenge. But the second part of passing liberty bills, I've been pretty freaking floored. I mean, we we've passed two constitutional carry bills with people that are in our coalition, literally their names. I mean, pushing these bills. You look at Savannah Maddox in Kentucky. She's passed a constitutional carry bill as a 31 year old who ran in a heated primary. We put her over the top by knocking 31,000 doors for her. And she's just, a, I mean, she's just a firecracker just owning these conservatives and saying, look, mm-hmm. this is Kentucky. We're supposed to be constitutional. <laughs> exactly. So it's been a challenge keeping folks accountable, but also pushing through liberty bills. But I'll tell you this, you know, it's also been fun uh, seeing some of the results of our effective legislators. Right on. Anyway, so make sure you check out America's fastest growing number one pro-liberty radio program, Free Talk Live. Free Talk Live is on seven nights per week on 190 plus radio stations coast to coast. And it's pro-liberty every issue, every time. So check out freetalklive.com. Again, that's freetalklive.com. Anyway, so this is Johnny Rocket, always launching ideas. And we'll be right back with the president of the Young Americans for Liberty, Cliff Maloney Jr., after this commercial break. So stick around. Rock and roll. Listener, chances are some of you are business owners, entrepreneurs, or have a product that you're dying to bring to market. Well, there's something that you all have in common. You need a killer brand, website, and an all-around awesome design to stand out from your competition. Well, I have the solution for you. Invisible Hand Design. We've trusted them with Launchpad Media, Blast Off Branding, Liberty Force, and even my wife's presidential campaign website. They do not disappoint. Yeah, didn't they also do the branding for McAfee in 2016? Damn straight. So if your company's image could use a hand, go ahead and reach out to them. Right. They're even offering Blast Off listeners a 20% discount on their first project. Book your conversation with them at invisiblehanddesign.com forward slash blast off. Oh, hell yeah. And we can even do one better. If you work with them, we'll feature the project all over our social media page to give you a launch and a little extra rocket fuel in your engine. Anyway, so that is InvisibleHandDesign.com forward slash blast off. Again, InvisibleHandDesign.com forward slash blast off. This is Johnny Rocket, always launching ideas in your direction. Hey, Ray. What, what's up? What do you call a fake noodle? A f- Faux pasta? An impasta. Oh, so close. Faux pasta. Faux pasta. (laughs) Okay, hey, Ray. To whoever stole my copy of Microsoft Office, I will find you. You have my word. (laughs) Come on, that's really bad. Actually. So bad. Okay. I actually grabbed my boobs on that one. I was like, no. Did you you really do that? (laughs) Yeah, I did. Ah, okay. Johnny, what a fun show. I'm loving Cliff. I love you. This yeah, is great. She likes you. You're good to go. You won today, sir. <laughs> Pass the test. Yeah, Pass the test. Anyway, so we're talking to the president for the Young Americans for Liberty, Cliff Maloney Jr. Thank you so much, sir, for being here. Love it. Thanks for having me, guys. Awesome. 
So what we do here on the second segment, sir, it's called Rocket Fire. What we do on Rocket Fire, sir, is I'm going to ask you a series of 10 questions. These questions will be politically or philosophically related. And if you can answer these questions between 30 to 60 seconds, that'd be badass. Mr. Maloney, are you ready to play? Rocket Fire. How are you throw them at me? All right, here we go. Question one. Under what circumstances do you think an individual in our current state of affairs has the right to violate a law? The right to violate a law. Mm-hmm. Well, I would say if that law is a nonviolent crime, if it is something that does not uh, impact the rights of others, I would justify that as something that is a law. Right on. Question two. Do you agree with Thomas Jefferson that a little rebellion now and then is healthy for the political system? No, I think we need a lot of rebellion. (laughs) (laughs) So a lot more rebellion. Yeah. Okay. That's that's what I'm, I'm going to keep it short for rocket, but yeah, that's, that's it. Okay. Question three. Do you think civic responsibility implies that citizens not only obey laws, but report lawbreakers to the authorities? If you see a friend shoplifting, is it your moral obligation to report them? I think it depends what the law is. So I think if the law, once again, is something that is harming others or ripping away their property rights or their inalienable rights, yes, I think that we have a moral obligation to, you know, come forward and, and try to have a peaceful society. But I think mm-hmm. if, if it's a nonviolent law or some sort of law that's some bureaucratic red tape, you know, that I have no interest in that. I love that you're swearing. That's cool, because I felt bad about that earlier. All right, cool. All right. Question four. What do you think of the concept of implicit consent, consenting to the laws just by being born here? Do you think that the concept violates the rules of the individual? Well, I think that, you know, I have a a pure view of what I would want, you know, society to be like in in a a free, uh, let's say a free market capitalist type society. I do think that when you are born, you are granted certain rights, and that comes with the idea that, you know, we want to partake in a peaceful society. So I don't know if I want to use the word moral obligation here, but I would say that, yes, you are born uh, with certain rights, and that means that you have a a duty to partake, uh, but I don't want that to seem like a status response of, you know, you need to comply with government I think it's more complying with your fellow man and your fellow woman in a way that is peaceful for all of society. Good answer. Question five. In what ways is computer technology a threat to individual liberty as well as a tool on its behalf? So I will get a lot of libertarians upset when I talk about uh, a lot of the social media in terms of uh, privacy. Look, I think I think you opt in. I mean, people could say, yeah, they're not reading the fine print, but I mean, when you are using networks and using apps and using platforms, you know, I mean, you're, you're agreeing to, I mean, you're giving them that data and you're doing it peacefully. You have the option to walk away from those things. Mm-hmm. So I, I don't really buy the, the, you know, these private companies. I get that they're, you know, as big as, as like third world countries and, you know, their, their economies of scale are, are, are too big for us to ignore. But I, I don't really take that. I think you can walk away from these companies. And you can decide what you're sharing with them. When it comes to the government, uh, I think the government is where the fear should be when it comes to technology. Um, exactly. I don't, I don't think the government is complying. I don't think, uh, I think we should fear that the government is using not just these platforms, but using the ability to tap into microphones, tap into cameras, and quite literally spying and collecting. I mean, they've obviously, uh, the Snowden and, and some of the Manning revelations have showed us what metadata looks like and just mm. what the government is doing. Um, and I think privacy is one of the most inherent 
historic rights that we should be fighting for. And I think that is what comes under threat when it comes to government surveillance and government ability to use technology to spy on American citizens. Absolutely. And make sure you read the fine print on Apple. Question six. What challenges and opportunities are created by increasing diversity? Do you think creating regulations that enforce diversity is taking away personal choice? You know, I think that what happens is it's so easy in today's society to fall under this spell of kind of collectivism and everything is about group rights. I think Mm -hmm. that's one beautiful thing about libertarianism is we push individual rights. Every single person having the ability to have the same set of rights is, and I, I use that word beautiful because I do think we should look at it as much more of a prosperous and a, just a, I don't want to say a, a, a nice term, but I do. I think it's a, it's a, it's a really cool thing we're trying to create. Mm-hmm. I don't believe in forced, uh, you know, collectivism. I think that's, uh, you know, people want to make it into a racist thing, but I look at it as a socialist term of, you know, just that you get rights as a group and it's about your group identity. My group identity is that I'm an American and then I'm an individual. Uh, and individual liberty is what we should be fighting for. And so I think that if we focus on that, I think that tyranny should scare the hell out of us. And tyranny of the collective, tyranny of the group identity, we should always push for individual liberty because that is the purest form of making sure that there is no type of racial bias. There is no type of collective or groupist bias against individuals. So we need to fight for that. Beautiful. Question seven. What changes that are taking place in contemporary society do you think is likely to present the greatest challenge to the liberty movement and to the individual rights in the years ahead? Yeah, I look, I mean, I think that this trend towards socialism, I don't think it's as vast as people would say. But then again, polls would tell me I'm wrong. Uh, 40 to 45 percent of people now favor some sort of, quote, socialism. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the thing that gives me hope is that when you break it down, people still think we should drive cars. People still think you should be able to make the choice of what job you have, where you can purchase a home, how much that home can be, self-responsibility, self-reliance. Those things still pull well, mm-hmm. but it scares out of me that people think that this idea of society as a whole, um, government power. I mean, a lot of people don't, you know, from the left don't like Trump, but they want to give the government more power. There is a uh, an inconsistency <laughs> right. there that I just think is is ironic. So I would say the rise of group think, the rise of the state making decisions for individuals, it should scare us and we should fight it tooth and nail. Bam. Question eight. How have the rights of assembly petition been important in modern history? So I think this is one of the things that people miss. And when it comes to free speech, um, mm-hmm. this, this, this idea that, look, I hear a lot of people that say, well, I believe in free speech, but not hate speech. <laughs> right, what, right. What they're missing is that you have to make a decision on who decides what is hate speech. Who gets to live? Because, look, you and I can probably agree, and a lot of my friends on the left would probably agree, you know, people that think that individuals should get rights based on the color of their skin, they are the scum of the earth, they are pieces mm-hmm. of and yep. they should, you know, you know, we should disagree with their arguments. But I want to hear their arguments. I want to hear them take those positions because when you can hear them, They can actually be seen. They can actually be, you know, not to associate with those individuals. So to me, the right to the petition, the right to assemble, the right to come together. I mean, I'm kind of lumping all this under the First Amendment. But I think what it does is it gives you the opportunity to really hear all viewpoints and make a decision. And I think that decision is more important when you're able to hear the free marketplace and open marketplace of ideas rather than some dictator or let's just say some government bureaucrat 
dictating what is good speech, what is bad speech, what is hate speech, because that's a dangerous slope. I always say this, I'm going to end this answer with this question. If you believe in, in silencing, quote unquote, hate speech, what happens when the person you disagree with philosophically or politically gets to determine what is labeled hate speech? Exactly. Rock and roll. Question nine. Should the right of association be interpreted to mean that organizations and businesses can impose as many limits as they wish in their membership, even if they are unethical? Yes, I believe in property rights. There you go. Question 10, the final question, sir. Do you believe the modern legal system can ever correct injustice and social problems in our society? You know, it's interesting. I do think that the judicial system is is one of the things we still kind of have a bedrock on in terms of the Constitution. Uh, now, you might say there are some activist judges, and I would probably agree with that at certain levels. There are. But I'm actually surprised if you peel back the onion of the judicial system. Like we have – look, we do, we do free speech – Sadly, we have to take colleges to court for free speech because they don't know what the First Amendment is in their public universities. <laughs> right. We have a hell of a record. Um, we've overturned 51 public university speech codes. Um, these what? Kind of, yeah, 51 of them in the past three years. And I don't really talk about it because, look, it's, it's not something that we um, – if you would have told me three years ago the free speech would be an issue you guys champion, I would have thought you were nuts. But it is a barrier to entry for libertarians, and I would even argue for conservatives, because campus administrators want their message to be heard, and so they kind of shut students down. So we've won 51 of these uh, different situations. Now, not all of them have been litigation or in court, but I will tell you, I think we've had up to 22 now that have been through court. We've only lost one, so we're 22 and one. When we go to court, and what I'm what I'm here to tell you is I have been impressed with the judges. Most judges still defend the First Amendment, uh, even versus you know, higher ed institutions that are taxpayer funded. So I do have faith in the court system. Um, I do think there are some slippery slopes to look at, and some things are being adjudicated at the federal level when I think they should be done at the state or even, heck, municipalities or local levels. Mm-hmm. I would argue if you want to talk about defense of the Constitution, I think the courts is one of the best places – Rust have hope. Rock and roll, and that's rock and fire. Give it up for Cliff Maloney. Bam. Good job, man. Really good job. Yeah, sexy. Awesome. Anyways, this is Johnny Rocket. We're going to take a quick commercial break, so stick around. We'll be right back. Rock and roll. Born to Jewish parents in Austria-Hungary in the 19th century, a boy of high intellect who had already mastered four languages, including French, Polish, German, Latin, and some aspects of Ukrainian, he went on to attend the University of Vienna, where he studied law. During his time at school, he would come to know his first heartache with the passing of his father in 1903. Then shortly after receiving his doctorate in law, he went on to serve the finance administration, more specifically on the Chamber of Commerce and Industry. During this time, he had taken classes under one of the smartest men in the world in his respective field. All this happened on the 11th hour before the First World War. It is here that he quickly wrote out one of the masterpieces that would be taught and celebrated in academia for decades to come. We found ourselves at a time where nations all across the globe had sacrificed peace and liberalism for war and central planning. And here was a man with the antidote to all the chaos, being pinned under fire what would be known as World War I. This war, however, didn't just destroy nations, economies, and political structures. It destroyed men's souls. Men forced to fight in horrific conditions against their better instincts, all at the direct request of the state and its political desires. In these trying times, the man would later write, 
How one carries on the face of unavoidable catastrophe is a matter of temperament. In high school, as was custom, I had chosen the verse by Virgil to be my motto. Do not give in to evil, but proceed ever more boldly against it. I recalled these words during the darkest hours of the war. Again and again, I'd met with situations for which rational deliberation found no means of escape. But then the unexpected intervened, and with it came salvation. I would not lose courage even now. I wanted to do everything an economist could do. I would not tire in saying what I knew to be true. It was his principled stance against the central planners and their insistence on propagating the war machine throughout economic interventionism that marred him as persona non grata among those in the War Department. As a consequence, he was sent back to the front lines once again to an even more disastrous battle, where on several occasions he nearly lost his life. But the man kept true to his word, never gave in to evil, and consistently proceeded more boldly against it, even at the risk of death. In his writings, he called out these atrocities and their consequences. In 1920, he wrote, War is harmful, not only to the conquered, but to the conqueror. Society has arisen out of the works of peace. The essence of society is peacemaking. Peace and not war is the father of all things. Only economic action has created the wealth around us. Labor, not the profession of arms, brings happiness. Peace builds. War destroys. Like many other things in his life, the state had nearly taken everything from him, including not only his respective work, but also his life. Around the mid-1930s, he fled to Switzerland after the Nazis burned his entire library and nearly captured him in Germany. He later retreated to the United States, barely escaping the Nazis yet again. Upon arrival, however, he was still treated with disdain, and most in academia had already taken in the Marxist pill, becoming recalcitrant to the ideas of peace and market cooperation. With the support of other classical liberal scholars, he was invited to teach at New York University, where he worked for over 20 years, all the way until his retirement. With an interesting life such as his, he's not known for his service as a soldier or a professor, but for his work in economics. He was one of the founding fathers of the Austrian School of Economics. His work on monetary theory, business cycles, and his works against socialism, interventionism, and the economic calculation problem changed human action and our understanding of markets forever. Under the weight of national economies shifting their focus on war and expanding central authority, he never gave in to evil and proceeded more boldly against it. As a consequence of his bravery and brilliance, millions around the world were made aware of the Austrian school, including a young student from New York named Murray Rothbard and a young doctor from Texas by the name of Ron Paul. So let's ring the bell for this man, Ludwig von Mises. And that's for whom? Hey, this is Blastoff and Johnny Rock, and I'm here with my Ray Truth, Miss Raylene Lightheart. Hey. And we're talking to the president of the Young Americans for Liberty, Mr. Cliff Maloney Jr. Thank, hey, you, thank, thank you so much for, for being here on the show. It's awesome. Great responses on that rocket fire. And uh, those were kind of, those, those weren't softball questions, I think, but you, I think you answered them very well. So good job. I appreciate it. Nice. So how do you feel young Americans are exploited or ignored by previous generations like boomers and Gen X? And what can we do to advocate for our youth in a way that helps us all achieve liberty in our lifetimes? Well, you know, here's what I would say. So young people, I think their instincts are are typically correct. Like I said, I mean, the the term socialism, I don't like the trend towards that, but I think their instincts are, are, you know, antitrust and government. So, you know, we don't want the government on our cell phone. We don't want the government on our emails. 
Uh, we don't want the government taking 30 cents of every dollar we make. I think a lot of the polling will show that young people's instincts are right. One of the things that I say is they need to figure out better ways to harness the energy. Um, mm -hmm. That is why, I mean, we've, we've talked a lot about kind of bringing people together to talk through what it means to be, you know, keeping people engaged. But that's one of the reasons we do Operation Win the Doors, because young people have this excitement. And here's the thing. I don't want to necessarily mobilize all young people because, you know, there are young people on the left. There are young people in the social conservative circles. But yeah. I think from our perspective, a lot of young people agree with our viewpoints. So we need to tap in and kind of harness that and figure out ways to get them engaged, but get them engaged in ways that are effective. So many people... I jokingly had spent a lot of my time talking people out of arguing on social media because <laughs> so many people will sit in the comment section and they'll write dissertations, you know, thousands of comments long. <laughs> like, come yeah. on, are, are you really changing somebody's heart or mind or are you just trying to look smart? Yeah. To be effective to me is, is a way to really get young people in the arena. How do we, how do we bridge the gap between them and older people who think they're just a bunch of SJWs or entitled or stupid or ignorant? I mean, how exactly do we help both groups come together? What do you think we should do with the older people? So specific to what I'm doing, let's say you're a 65 year old voter, right? Mm -hmm. You're retired. You're sitting at your house, your doorbell rings. You open the door. It's a 20 year old female. Your initial instinct, whether you're a conservative or a moderate Democrat, your initial instinct is, all right, this is some, you know, Bernie bro. Right. Actually, I would think it would be a Mormon or a Jehovah's <laughs> Witness. They're out there, too. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> so you're going to be pretty surprised when all of a sudden, they're like, no, you know, I'm here. There's a pro-liberty candidate in the race. They want to get rid of the income tax. You know, they want to do X, Y, or Z and defend gun rights. And you're like, what? You know, how did this person excite you? So- what we find is a lot of times it's just starting the conversation, mm -hmm. right? Right. And look, I'm not going to lie to you guys. I mean, we're our target audience is, is college students, right? Like we're, we're reaching college students. But our, when you talk about bridging the gap, our experience bridging the gap is just having the conversation and getting folks to realize like, look, we can get energized by some of these candidates, but it also energizes older folks to say, you know, maybe some of these liberty candidates, maybe they have something because – they're energizing young people. And we agree with them on 70% of the issues. Right. 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 We're cutting taxes on cutting spending. We agree on kind of this less regulation, more pro-business, more free market. And it almost persuades them to say, man, this might be the future. Okay. So getting the kids right in front of those people. So getting the young people out there doorbelling is the reason why it bridges the gap for them. Got it. Yes. Okay. Thank you. Here's here's one one more thing here. Uh, I want your commentary on this. In 2011, the University of North Texas chapter of Young Americans for Liberty protested a potential outdoor smoking ban on campuses by handing out cigarettes in an effort to get students to sign a petition. <laughs> I love this. Opposing the ban. When the university officials reprimanded them, the group claimed that they would seek legal aid and that restrictions on handling, handing out cigarettes was a violation of the First Amendment. To me, that is awesome. And Raylene and I were thinking about doing this when I lived in Seattle is handing out straws because they ban straws in restaurants. And I thought, I just think that's an awesome, I want your commentary. You probably don't smoke or support smoking, but I still think it's awesome. I love that kind of He supports rebellion. freedom though. I, I support freedom, you know? And, I, and again, like you don't have, you can give it to your smoking friend, you know, but to me that that's, that's activism. That's awesome. Yeah. And you know, it's funny because we're always trying to figure out ways that our 
Um, not in your face, but, you know, ways that really kind of prove a point. It shows some of the government craziness and the campus craziness, especially. And so I think back in you know, 2011, that was one of them. Um, but it's it's interesting because you bring up Smokey. I mean, you know, they're, they're trying to ban vaping now. And I would argue that, uh, you know, I'm not a regular vapor. I'll, I'll enjoy some hookah every once in a while and, and a, right. a drool, uh, from time to time. But it's funny because, I mean, a lot of young people are using these things. But that's that rebellious streak, right? That's that rebellious yeah. kind of push that you see from a lot of people that are that are libertarian. And so I'm always trying to find fun ways to not own the government, but to kind of call them out for the, you know, to, to find ways that you can get normal people to kind of think about things. Um, and I think handing out cigarettes or like you said, handing out straws to kind of say, you know, this is insanity. Um, mm-hmm. Murderers and robbers and rapists out there, um, a lot of, you know, we do a lot of this with like, we were building jails on campus to, to talk about, we call it incarceration nation to just talk about how crazy it is, you know, that we have 25% of the world's prison population, but we only have 5% of the world's population. Oh. When you, <laughs> right. These, these small nuggets like handing out the cigarettes, you know, it resonates with people. And I think that we always, as libertarians, you know, we don't need to be talking about ending the federal reserve immediately, or we don't need to be leading with that. We need to be leading with the things that people are going to connect with. And I think that's a great example of, once again, not watering down the message, but simplifying it to get people to at least open their minds and start having conversations. Just to get interested. And I'm with you. And I think it's great. It's a great act of rebellion because you're not hurting anyone, but you you are in the system. It's like we have the right to smoke and you can take your, your, your non-smoking policy and shove it up. You know, that's what I'm saying. <laughs> I'm serious, man. I I love it. I love that you guys did that. That was awesome. So I was going to say, what do you think are going to be the hot topics soon? I know that you're talking about the um, war and military industrial complex, which I really think is actually important right now. Um, And then privacy. If you had to pick about maybe two or three trending topics that are going to be coming up in the future in the next mm, five years, what do you think they'll be? So I think our biggest obstacle, one of them is, uh, well, so I think the biggest issue is definitely foreign policy. I still think that that is going to be one where people are tired of war. And I think that we can tap into that. And if it's not, if you're talking about recruiting and kind of current events, I think that we've got to stay sharp on foreign policy. Um, no pun intended, more, more of a mm. dope sharp, but you know what I mean? We, we've got to seeing the young people really respond to that considering the young people right now have seen war for their entire lives or do they even notice? I, yes, I think it is the number, I think it is the number one way to reach people because, yeah, I mean, I'm 28. I have never seen a day. I mean, college students today, they're, some of them have fathers who fought in the same war as their brother. I mean, think about how crazy that is. To us, it's like, I mean, it resonates. So I think that's a big issue. Ground control here. Well, unfortunately, we are out of time. But if you would like to hear the conclusion of this interview with Cliff Maloney, please head on over to supportblastoff.com. And for as little as a buck an episode, you can get this and the after party, too. And I'll let you know, for the after party today, we have a special guest coming on. So that's something you won't want to miss. And as if all this wasn't enough, for two bucks an episode, you can get the all-nighter, too, where Johnny and Raylene talk about, well, I'm not exactly sure what it is they talk about, but it's worth it, I'm sure. So anyways, thank you for listening. See you next week.